This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The young shining cuckoo is fed by its foster parents on insects and spiders. But the korimako, or bellbird, has a much more interesting diet of nectar. It's been something of a radio personality and has sung on shortwave radio to Australia and the Pacific nations for 30 years. However, the early recordings failed to reflect the versatility of the bellbird, with its wide variety of liquid notes and artistically placed clicks and bell-like sounds. It's not surprising that Maori mythology describes Korimako, the bellbird, as the messenger of Tane, sent to herald the coming of the sun. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Welcome to Community of Chaos, friends. My apologies for lateness. We had technical hiccups on my end. We have with us Lucy Stewart from the uh, coordinator of the Disarmament and Security Center in Christchurch, representing the Security Center and Disarmament. And Lucy's going to talk about disarmament and uh, her. Lucy, could you briefly tell us about the Disarmament and Security Centre? Sure, thank you. Um, Thank you for having me on here today. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, So the Disarmament and Security Centre is a small not-for-profit charity based here in Ōtutahi Christchurch. We've been running for uh, several decades, actually. Uh, It was started by Dr Kate Jews and Commander Robert Green of the Royal Navy, um, now retired, and... um, these two started up the centre and I'm sure many of your listeners will have heard of them and be aware of their um, really long depth of, of career in this field uh, working on uh, nuclear-free issues. Uh, so today we primarily operate as a virtual centre. We specialise in disarmament education, uh, primarily at the tertiary level working with the next generation of students, uh, making sure that they understand about New Zealand's nuclear-free policy and our history as a nuclear-free nation, and also just empowering them and providing them with the tools to be able to continue to work in this field. So whether they go on um, different careers in, in government or um, civil society, wherever they are, that they um, understand about the history and can continue to work for a nuclear-free world. Lucy, could you tell me your thoughts on Hiroshima and how the knowledge of Hiroshima may affect your attitude toward war and nuclear weapons? Sure. Well, I think it's really important to every year um, remember what happened at Hiroshima and Nagasaki um, because these two atomic bombings are the only time that nuclear weapons have been used in war and the just absolutely horrific results that those two bombs had is really important to remember and to revisit so that we don't lose sight of that because at the end of the day we're talking about um, 
absolutely inhumane weapons. And sometimes it's really hard for us to fathom what that actually looks like in practice, especially for us here in New Zealand. We're a long way from conflict. Um, Conflicts are usually happening on the other side of the world. And so when we read the stories of what happened at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it brings back, um, yeah, it tells that real life story of these were humans and this was an environment and these are the devastating effects that happened. Um, So that becomes real and it's not just this abstract weapon that we're talking about. Um, And so it has hugely impacted my work, uh, both reading um, various accounts and and there's many wonderful resources both online and in hard copy. Um, John Hershey's Hiroshima. Um, There's you can visit uh, or read um, the story of Sadako and um, and the paper cranes. Then online you can read Hiroshima stories. Um, there's all sorts of different uh, stories you can go to. And, yeah, and, and then also hearing firsthand stories from Habakusha. I've been at the United Nations for the negotiations for the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons and hearing um, Japanese Habakusha there and telling these stories at the United Nations of the effects on their bodies, on their families, on their community, just really hits home hard why we need to continue this fight, you know, over how many years is it later? 70, this is the 77th anniversary of Hiroshima and Nagasaki to remember that we we haven't actually achieved the goal. There are still 13,000 nuclear weapons in the world, and it's really important to remember that and the effects that they have. When you talk about the Japanese hibachi, you know, can you explain that? Oh, so the word hibakusha um, means the survivors or, or the victims of atomic bombing in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but then the word can be used for other survivors of um, nuclear testing, but generally it's used with um, in the Japanese context. Um, and the word often refers to the survivors rather and to use that kind of empowering word of survivors rather than victims, because Habakusha have been instrumental actually no. in the case for uh, banning nuclear weapons, and they've been very powerful in sharing their stories. Uh, and that's taken a long time, as I understand. For a long time, there was a lot of shame about being a Habakusha because uh, these people suffered all like a whole raft of different health effects, um, cancers, birth defects. Um, this is partly what makes nuclear weapons different, isn't it? I mean, the people in Nagasaki and uh, Hiroshima weren't just bombing raids, but even people who weren't touched physically by the bombs were the radiation. People died. Uh, from the radiation, sometimes to. Yes, um, sorry, Marvin, your audio's cutting out the there. radiation that they or their parents had. Is that correct? Yes, I'm sorry, your audio is cutting out there a bit, but I, yeah. as I understand your question, you're saying um, why are these weapons different and the, the experiences that um, these Habakusha had compared to other weapons? And absolutely, I mean, it's been proven now, 77 years after the effect, there has been a lot of um, research done um, uh, on the victims and, you know, going through their health effects. And absolutely, we can see that 
uh, atomic um, radiation. It changes the DNA of um, any victim who comes in contact with it. Obviously, there's a whole spectrum of, you know, um, how closely you contacted and where you were relative to the bomb and things like that. But absolutely, it changes the DNA of the victim. And then that can be passed down for generations to generations. So even today, um, yeah, offspring of victims are being born with health issues and um, and have all sorts of different cancers. And during the, after, the attack, after the attack, people who thought they hadn't been affected months later died of um, radiation poisoning or were tremendously affected by it for the rest of their lives. Is that the case? Yes, absolutely. Um, even today, people are having all sorts of different health effects. And um, we're not just seeing it with uh, in Japan as well. We're seeing it all across the world where uh, nuclear weapons have been tested. So we see this in um, survivors from places like Kazakhstan where there's been uh, testing in the Pacific Islands. Uh, even here in New Zealand, uh, the the veterans of um, various military veterans, for example, those who were at Operation Grapple in the Pacific, their offspring, um, generation after generation, we've seen great you know great grandchildren born with all sorts of health effects um, that are pointing to the radiation damage that their, um, their ancestors had. Can you talk about the success or failure of attempts to? limit the spread of nuclear weapons and get rid of them. Okay. Okay, so um, again, your your audio's breaking up there, Marvin. I wonder if you turn your video off, it might be a smoother audio. Um, so the success or failure to ban nuclear weapons well, as a, 77 years on, we're not doing um, – there's some good news and there's some bad news. I guess the, the really good news that I'd like to highlight today is that the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons uh, went into force last year in um, 2021 in January, and this is the first global treaty that is a um, categorical ban on nuclear weapons. So it bans the testing, uh, the creation, uh, the promotion – um, to assist others to to transport or basically anything to do with nuclear weapons, it bans it. Um, we now have over 80 countries who have either signed or ratified this treaty and have come on board. Um, the treaty went into force uh, 90 days after 50 countries ratified and we were reasonably quick to get to that number. New Zealand was in the, um, the first countries to sign and ratify and has been a champion of this treaty. Now, um, just last month in Vienna, there was the first meeting of states parties to this treaty and about 140 countries went and participated, including some nuclear weapon states that came as observers, even though they haven't signed the treaty. So this is a really big leap forward for disarmament that basically the majority of the world are saying these weapons um, are illegal, they're inhumane, and we need to abolish them and they've um, come on board with this treaty. So that's a real positive news. And this treaty will only continue to gather more force um, as more and more countries ratify and help to promote it. Obviously, for a... a um, 
a treaty isn't always easy to ratify and get on board with. If you think of very small countries that might have um, all sorts of different pressing issues, even though they support a treaty, it might take them a couple of years to actually get on board with it. Even for a country like New Zealand, that has a lot of resources. I understand that the world. I understand that the world court has declared nuclear weapons illegal. Can you tell us about that world court case? Because I think it started in New Zealand. Kate and others. Yeah, so the 1996 World Court, it was an advisory opinion um, of the World Court, which is the International Court of Justice. Uh, this was about a 10-year civil society global campaign to go to um, the court to ask its legal opinion, are nuclear weapons illegal or not? And so at this point, we didn't have the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons that I was just talking about, um, that we only had the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, um, as well as the Nuclear Weapon-Free Zones. Uh, and so we didn't have anything that was a categorical ban on nuclear weapons. So, yeah, the civil society movement, um, absolutely huge effort that turned global. It did start here in Otatahi Christchurch, uh, spearheaded by uh, Paul Evans and um, yeah, Dr. Kate Jews. Um, and a whole raft of people, actually, I, I can't name them all. Um, and then it went global and all sorts of different groups and individuals were supporting it. Um, the court uh, eventually in 1996 declared that nuclear weapons would generally be illegal um, for use. And so this was a really big step forward for international law towards banning nuclear weapons. Um, it wasn't perfect because it said um, generally, and then it did have some loopholes that the nuclear weapon states uh, clung on to. Uh, but at the same time, it was a really good step forward that's been really instrumental and important for um, the next stages in banning nuclear weapons. So for the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons um, and all sorts of other things, this was a great start. Okay, I think we might have some music now, and this will be Annie Hall, and I come and stand at every door. And that was scattered by 
I need no fruit, I need no rice, I need no sweets, nor even bread. I ask for nothing for myself, for I am dead, for I am dead. All that I ask is that for peace, you work today, you work today, so that the children of the world may live and grow and laugh. Friends, we're talking with Lucy Stewart of the Disarmament and Security Center located in um, Christchurch, but representing New Zealand. And we're talking about Hiroshima Day and nuclear weapons and disarmament. And a public service announcement. This August 6th, Saturday at 11 a.m., there's a Hiroshima Day memorial at the... Otago um, Museum Reserve, Great King Street, in front of the university. And if it's raining, they'll be at the Church of the Holy Name, which is 420 Great King Street. So if you have some time, we'd like to um people in Hiroshima and the concern about nuclear weapons come to the Hiroshima Memorial Day, August 6th, Saturday at 11 a.m. Lucy, can you tell us why it's important that young New Zealanders learn about disarmament and New Zealand's nuclear re-legislation? Apparently, a lot of people don't know a lot about history. Um, no, thank you. It's a great question. Um, just before I start, uh, on the back of your public service announcement, I just thought I'd mention if anyone is in Otatahi Christchurch this weekend and listening, please uh, come on down to our Hiroshima and Nagasaki commemoration, which is on Sunday. That's the 7th of um, August at 11am. We'll be in the Botanic Gardens at the World Peace Bell. Um, we have our annual uh ceremony there. We'll have lots of speakers, including the mayor and the Japanese consul, um, and we'll have songs and we'll float flowers in the river. So do come down and join us. It's always a really um, memorable event. Um, so back to your question, why is it important that young New Zealanders learn about disarmament in New Zealand's free legislation? Well, it's, it's really crucial. Um, as you said, you know, many young people today don't know um, about this history and New Zealand's history, um, which is a real issue and something that we work on every day here at the Disarmament and Security Centre. Um, we need the next generation of New Zealanders to understand um, why we're nuclear free and the importance of this. We need them to be able to continue um, the good work that New Zealand has done and um, continues to do on the world stage. So New Zealand became nuclear free over 30 years ago. 
And this was a real countrywide um, movement um, and whole diverse groups of people um, were backing it and behind it. Um, and it came from a real concern of what nuclear weapons were doing across the world, especially the testing that we could see in our backyard. And um, sorry, I shouldn't use it in our backyard, but in our region in the Pacific Um we were seeing the testing that was happening and the concern for the peoples in those areas and the environment and then also the effects of radiation that was then um, kind of floating downwind to New Zealand. So there was real concern about um, strontium-90 in milk, um, which can cause all sorts of different cancers. Um, and obviously kids um, back in those days were drinking a lot of milk. Uh, so a whole lot of different concerns came about for New Zealand to become... What does the nuclear-free legislation say? What does it, what's the nuclear free legislation actually say? Well, it's, I mean, it's very detailed. It's one of the strongest nuclear free legislations in the world. It basically says um, anything to do with nuclear weapons in New Zealand and within our um, territorial zone is illegal. So we can't have them. We can't work on them. Um, other countries can't bring them to our country. Even um, for public servants, we're not. Uh, they cannot go and work on other people's nuclear weapons programs. Um, and yeah, so it's a ban on anything to do with nuclear weapons, both within our country, but also people kind of bringing them through. And so you'll often see, you know, when um, the US ship visits and things um, are coming about, this issue um, re-emerges because people are saying, well, will there be anything to do with nuclear weapons on that ship? Um, and so it's really important that we can't just take it for granted that we have the strong legislation, that we'll always have a supportive government and people who understand about our nuclear-free laws. We need to make sure we're educating the next generation of young people so that they can continue to make sure that legislation is strong, continue to put pressure on the government if they see things happening that might be um, weakening our legislation. And then also our government plays a really leading role in disarmament forums internationally. And so it's really important that we have young people that can move into those jobs and have that knowledge to back it up and, and to continue to be that strong um, international voice that we have. Uh, and, and so we can't take that for granted. A lot of the people with a knowledge of this area are aging. And so we need to, young people today have so many pressing issues, um, you know, cost of housing and climate change and all sorts of uh, things um, facing them. And so unfortunately, disarmament does sort of go down the, the list of priorities, not to say that young people don't care. And anytime I talk to young people, they obviously think this is um, a really serious issue. But at the same time, like I said, they, they're, um, you know, being a student today and trying to um, pay your rent and um, and pay your fees and things like that is, is really um, critical. And so unfortunately, we don't have the young um, people involved that we would like to, but this is something that we work on every day. Um, and also, I should say, as young New Zealanders go out into their professions, whether it's in government, in science, in technology or engineering, they also need to know about New Zealand's disarmament ethos and also what our international obligations are. So this is particularly in like the STEM, you know, the science, technology, engineering fields, but they need to ensure that they don't inadvertently end up in industries of producing or encouraging weapons of mass destruction um, or illegal weapons in general. And this is a real issue with um, especially new technologies. Uh, so we need a lot more education, disarmament education in New Zealand and actually across the globe about um, 
yeah, just being really careful if you are studying these sort of uh, topics to know where the dangers are and how to um, work on ethical technologies and make sure you're not contributing to the problems. Would you talk for, about the bulletin of atomic scientists and the doomsday clock? Sure. Um, so the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists is a really well-respected group of scientists and the Doomsday Clock um, is a kind of a globally well-known clock that basically says um, how close the world is to Doomsday and every year that they set the clock handle and however close it is to midnight sort of says what the... Um, is an indication of what the risk factors are. And so every year this group of scientists and also including uh, Nobel Peace Prize laureates, they consult and look at the issues facing the globe of that particular year, um, and then they set the clock. So right now it's 100, 100 seconds to midnight, which is the same as last year, and it's actually the closest the clock has ever been to midnight. So that, that's basically saying that the threat right now is really high. Um, and the issues that they look at um, are pretty broad, but the issues that are affecting um, the time at the moment are the various global tensions, so Russia, China, US, North Korea, um, all those sorts of um, global tensions going on, uh, the nuclear arsenals that um, are held across the world and the risk factors for those arsenals and the fact that basically all the nuclear weapon states are modernising um, and, and putting more and more money into the arsenals and at the same time really not taking their disarmament obligations seriously. Then things like climate change, um, the repercussions of two years of pandemic, um, also things like biological weapon threats and disruptive technologies. So that those are kind of a really broad um, list of indicators that they look at and they've come out with yeah 100 seconds to midnight which is pretty pretty scary and people are saying that right now um is the threat of nuclear war is as high as it has ever been including within the cold war um with russia and the u.s and the and various tensions going on so it's a really real threat in connection with the russian invasion of ukraine um Oh, first, I, before we go into that, could you discuss the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Review Conference, which is starting today at the UN? Sure. Yes so, yes, so as you said, um, the Nuclear Weapon Non-Proliferation Review Conference, Treaty Review Conference, I should say, is started today in New York and it will run for the entire month of August. And basically all, um, it's run through the, UN General Assembly, so all the nations are there. Uh, this treaty was uh, is a 1968 treaty, and so every five years they have a review conference to kind of track the progress of the treaty, um, work on various issues with the treaty, and they have different working groups. Um, the treaty basically, uh, they call it the Grand Bargain. It and basically acknowledges that five countries have nuclear weapons. Um, that is the US, China, Russia, and um, UK and France. And the bargain being that the rest of the countries who have signed it will not develop nuclear weapons, but at the same time, the nuclear weapon states, uh, those five possessing nuclear weapons, will both work towards disarmament in Article 6, and they will also um, 
uh, a shared the peace uh, the peaceful technology of nuclear um so for nuclear energy uh and so that's a grand bargain and there are various pillars to the treaty so there's um, non-proliferation and disarmament um and basically uh over 50 years of this treaty it's really under strain at the moment and and this particular conference will be very tense because the nuclear weapon states are really not upholding their side of the bargain. Uh, they have um, promised to disarm and to work towards meaningful uh, disarmament, yet yeah, 50 years later they are all modernising and um, increasing their arsenals and, and basically even walking back on various commitments they have made at um, previous conferences, which is really disappointing to see. Um, and then, of course, this treaty is, this particular review conference is even more fought because of the Russia-Ukraine um, situation. Just at the beginning of this year, the P5, that's the permanent five with the nuclear weapons, they issued a really hopeful statement that... Um, basically stating that restating um Gorbachev saying that nuclear weapons um should never be used and that they would work towards disarmament and so that gave the disarmament community and I guess the world a lot of hope that meaningful progress was going to happen and then of course shortly after that Russia then invaded Ukraine and has been threatening nuclear weapons use so um a massive step backwards um and so going into this treaty review conference, that is the backdrop. Um, at the same time, though, the new treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons has come into force um, since the last review conference, and obviously a huge number of states have come on board and said we are making meaningful progress towards nuclear abolition. Um, so that's another um, new factor for this treaty. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Obviously, the nuclear weapon states... Um, and not keen on this new treaty and doing everything they can to kind of block its um, being mentioned within the NPT um, and all sorts of things like that. Uh, so the New Zealand team is there on the ground at the UN. Um, you can go on Twitter and see um, updates from our Minister for Disarmament and Arms Control, the Honourable Phil Twyford. He um, put out a tweet this morning with a really great video stating what New Zealand's aims were and New Zealand is on the ground you're pushing for a really strong outcome and to get the nuclear weapon states to um, yeah, to come with meaningful contributions and really commit to nuclear disarmament. So it'll be a really interesting month. Do the different nuclear states take different positions on this? Yeah, um, of course, they all have... Um, uh, they all have different positions and, and these positions can change as well. Uh, and and then you've also got the states who have withdrawn from the treaty. So you've got India, Pakistan, North Korea and Israel who are outside of that treaty regime. Um, and I think, as I understand, India and Pakistan withdrew because of kind of the hypocrisy of the regime that the five nuclear weapon states said they're disarmed, they're not, and... So these countries say, well, we'll withdraw and then we'll create our own nuclear weapons, which is a huge threat. And we don't, I mean, luckily only four countries have withdrawn. Um, so it definitely has stopped proliferation. Um, there's no question about that. But at the same time, some proliferation has occurred. So it's not perfect. Um, but yeah, within the nuclear weapon states, they have all sorts of different policies and um, you have more, I guess, 
a moderate arsenal such as, um, uh, well, uh, uh, China, uh, the UK and France have much smaller arsenals than, say, the US and Russia that just have absolutely um, eye-watering amounts of nuclear weapons. But meanwhile, still from these smaller countries... It's still really concerning, and the UK last year really walked back on their disarmament obligations and actually um, publicly stated that they were massively increasing the arsenal. Still, it's hugely smaller than US and Russia, but by 40% they were increasing. Um, Also, there's uh, lots of satellite images of what's happening in China with it looks like huge development. Sorry? So yes, within within the nuclear weapon states, there's all sorts of different um, yeah, policies and intentions going on. Does the invasion of Ukraine and the tension between China and the United States, uh, their diplomatic and military rivalry, put pressure on New Zealand's nuclear free policies, and they're also in- a more independent foreign policy, what kind of pressure are we receiving? And are there ways we can use our independent foreign policy to promote peace? Or should we join an alliance? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't necessarily think it's put pressure on our nuclear-free policy as such. Um, I'd say, yeah, it has put pressure on our ho- this our so-called independent foreign policy. Um, obviously, New Zealand has now really jumped into the NATO kind of Western alliance camp with our support for the Ukraine. Um, we've put a lot of money into the NATO fund, um, and we've also really followed that whole group of countries that have been supporting Ukraine. Um, and a lot of the support I'm I'm supportive of, um, you know, the humanitarian assistance and the money for um, uh, for refugees and um, and the legal measures, I think, are, um, in general, most people in the disarmament movement are supportive of. Um, yes, a lot of us are questioning um, either pressure on New Zealand to support militarily and whether that um, is such a wise move. Also, um, there's the, the issue of, between the United States and China, which... Yeah, I mean, again, I don't think that has any bearing on our nuclear-free policy because both countries accept what it is. But at the same time, as um, you would have seen Jacinda Ardern was at the NATO conference, and to be fair, her speech there was really strong and talking about the importance of being nuclear-free while also having alliances. Um, But at the same time, there were people questioning whether she should have been at a NATO conference in general, um, considering uh, NATO can be seen to be quite aggressive um, and and provocative as well. So um, it's certainly pretty grey there. I think New Zealand, it's a tricky role for New Zealand. We have lots of different partners and across the world we work with all sorts of different countries on different issues and we're generally pretty good at maintaining those relationships. Um, yeah, it becomes really tricky when those various countries have tensions like the US and China. Um, and I think overall New Zealand plays a good role there at um, trying to keep the middle ground. And I think we really need to continue to do that to maintain relationships with all those countries and not get tied into any particular one alliance that might pit us against another. Um, at the end of the day, we're a really small player globally and we need friends everywhere. We're also a really respected global player um, and we can help to ease tensions. Um, 
And what we do do best, and I've seen this myself at the United Nations, is to promote a nuclear-free world and to promote support for the UN and um, collaboration. So I think New Zealand should focus on doing that and being, you know, a, a really constructive player in in the Pacific, uh, and, and not yeah get tied into big military alliances that ask us to spend lots of money on the military and things like that that aren't necessarily helpful in a a small drop in the bucket globally, but a really big cost to New Zealand. I think we already spend a huge amount of money militarily for our size. And actually that money would be far more helpful um, for other things in our region, you know, humanitarian assistance and climate change. And also just here at home with housing, health and education and things like that. That should be our focus rather than trying to have any particularly big military might. (coughs) Well, do you think we're, going to, will there be further strain on our independent foreign policy? And you see us actually having continuing to have a creative role here. I'm sorry, I missed that question, Marvin. Do you see us continuing to have a creative role in using our independent foreign policy? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think that's really the only role that we can have is, um, yeah, continuing to um, be creative and think for ourselves and um, and speak out when we see um, atrocities happen. Well, thanks, a lot. thanks a lot for coming on. It's been good to discuss these issues with you, uh, Lucy. Lucy Stewart from the uh, coordinating um, person for the Disarmament and Security Center. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks a lot, Lucy. Thanks for having me. It's been great to be here. If anyone would like to um, keep in touch with the Disarmament and Security Center, you can find us across social media on Disarm Secure uh, NZ and also our website, www.disarmsecure.org. There's a lot of great disarmament resources, um, current uh, disarmament news and blogs and things like that. So do get in touch. Okay. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.